Our text on this Thanksgiving Sunday morning as we hear from the living God in His Word is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Those of us who were here in the 9 o'clock service had the delight of witnessing the baptism of Winifred Bjorkness this morning with great joy. And so the baptismal water is still here on the front table. That's why you see that if you, when you come forward for communion. As you know, we're working our way as a church through this written sermon we call Hebrews. You should, as always, keep a Bible open there as we look at the passage before us this morning. To get us into this text and also to summarize a bit of where we've been before this point, whether you weren't here in the recent weeks or even if you were, let me begin by repeating something I said last week, though I only said it very quickly so you'd be forgiven for missing it. Last week I said, Hebrews is all about the Son bringing about the promise. And I'd like to bring that back into focus as we launch off this morning. Hebrews is, I think, all about the Son bringing about the promise. Which means as we study this book in the weeks and in the months to come, we need to aim to be clear regarding the three parts of that statement. First, who is the Son? Second, what is the promise? And third, how does the Son bring about the promise? That's Hebrews, I think. We've done some work already on the first question regarding the Son. We've done a bit on the second question regarding the promise last week. We'll do more today. And as we'll see also today, the third question is the one that's just about to come into sharper focus now in the coming weeks in our work through Hebrews. That's not all that Hebrews is about in the sense that from the start, I've argued that simply to get us to understand that theological content isn't why the pastor wrote his sermon. The pastor isn't writing really to teach that content as the end goal of Hebrews. It's a means. The pastor is writing to bring about faith, a life of obedience to the end. So last week, if you were here, we saw in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, clearly I think that the main point the pastor made there is in verse 1. Pay attention, he says. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. In the context of Hebrews, that means what God has spoken by his Son. That's how the whole sermon began in chapter 1, verse 2. And so, last week we considered that what God has spoken by his Son has a whole lot to do with salvation. How shall we escape, says the pastor in verse 3 of chapter 2, if we neglect such a great salvation? So I want to say what I think is pretty clear by now, but I just want to make sure it's clear, so I'll say it. Salvation is the promise. Salvation is what the Son is bringing about which is worth remembering because the promise language is what we're going to find all over the place later in Hebrews. We've heard it already a few times, just as I have quoted in my sermons, I think every week, Hebrews 10, verse 36. It's kind of like a theme statement. You have need of endurance, the pastor says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
I'm simply trying to make the point that what's been promised originally to Abraham, as we'll see in the weeks to come, and then to all of God's people through history, that promise is salvation. Already we began to see this concept working in verse 14 of chapter 1, if you have the text open in front of you. The pastor speaks there at the end of chapter 1, which was a chapter that was a rather lengthy consideration of the glory of the Son as Jesus now ascended in the heavenly realm, you remember. Then in verse 14, the pastor is talking about angels and he says, Are they, meaning angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's talking about you and me, friends. Like the original hearers of this sermon, we are to inherit salvation, assuming we persevere in faith. So last week we began, and this is the last thing I'll do to kind of bring us all to together here now. Last week we began to consider the idea then that salvation is finally a place. It's the place where God dwells. It's life with God. That's the core of the promise. Or to use the language that we find later in chapter 12, it's the kingdom that cannot be shaken that we come to when we arrive at the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Or, in the language of our text now this morning, as we turn there, it's the world to come. Right? We're there now, chapter 2, verse 5. Look at it. The pastor writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Well, you ought to ask, what world is he talking about there? And the answer is, well, it's, it's the one to come. It's the place of salvation, and the life we'll live in that place. You and I are going to inherit that life. And watch this. The key throughout Hebrews for us as we try to live our lives faithfully now is that this world that we're considering here is the world in which Jesus is already reigning as the exalted Son of God. As hard as that is to conceive of, and we'll say more about it later in Hebrews, it has to be the case. Just glance back at chapter 1, verse 6. You'll see it there. And again, the pastor writes, When he, God, brings the firstborn, Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. We said a few weeks ago, that's the heavenly realm that our pastor is writing about there. It's where Jesus has come and ascended to now. He's already seated. That's where we will go and live. And we know from other testimony in the scriptures that that place will ultimately be coterminous with all of the universe in the end. The world to come will encompass everything. Just listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the world to come in Hebrews. So pay attention, the pastor urges us. Don't neglect such 
a great salvation. Why? Verse 5 again. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Of course it wasn't. We already know from chapter 1, verse 14, that angels serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So that now the big question to be addressed by the pastor here is this. To whom will the universe be subjected in the future? Because the answer to that, hear me, will tell us something about how great our salvation really is. See, you grasp this point, and it's not an easy one to grasp, the pastor's saying. And you'd be a fool to neglect what's coming, whatever your circumstances may be in the present. So who is it? According to the pastor, who will rule in that eternal kingdom? I've been taking this long time to wind up to this and this answer. Now here it is. You will, Christian. And I will. And all redeemed men and women will. Human beings. That's to whom the world to come will be subjected. God's ultimate intention is to have his kingdom ruled by women and men. Does that surprise you? <laughs> is that news to you? It, in fact, sort of surprised me this week when I got deep enough into it, I have to say. Have you ever really contemplated what it is that we'll be up to in the world to come of which we are speaking? I mean, we're not really helped all that much here by the popular level standard Christian thinking regarding what heaven is like, are we? No. What we're going to find out this morning is that life in the world to come bears a strong resemblance to life as God always intended it to be, how he made it, in fact, to be in the beginning. This is a tough little text that we have before us this morning. So what I'm going to do is just now move forward with the pastor to try to follow his thought. There is no outline per se for this sermon because one did not suggest itself to me. Basically, the pastor quotes from a psalm in verses 6 to 8a of our passage now. And then after he quotes from the psalm, he comments or comments in response to it in verses 8b and through to the end of 9. But we'll just walk through it. <laughs> so the psalm. The psalm that the pastor quotes from here, beginning in verse 6, is Psalm 8. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says, it has been testified somewhere, which is weird. I think it's because he wants to, to continue to focus our attention on the fact that in the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, as he began the sermon, and that that now has its culmination and fulfillment in the Son. He knows where he's quoting from. It's Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, at least in the English. The point is, this is God speaking. So pay attention. 
Let's read the quote from Psalm 8 here that begins in verse 6 of Hebrews 2. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, I think to make any sense of what the pastor's point is here, and as he then continues after the quote in verse 8, we need to understand a few things about Psalm 8. So, let's turn there. It's page 420 in the Black Bibles on the table, or it's page 497, I think, in the large print, if you have that. All right? Everybody knows why we're turning to Psalm 8 at this point. That's what our pastor is quoting. Now, once you're there at Psalm 8, you'll notice that Psalm 8 begins and ends the same way. You see it? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The focus is on the name. And what name is David referring to? He says it right up front. It's the Lord. All capital letters. That, all capital letters Lord, means Yahweh, the God of the covenant. In other words, this is the God who has revealed himself to Israel by that name. And the name evokes the covenant. This is the God who's made promises to Abraham and his offspring who will be faithful to those promises. That's what the use of that name entails, which is really important to know, right? Because without that, without that covenant, without that promise to Abraham and his descendants, if none of that had been revealed, well, then what would man be in the vast universe? You could wipe out seemingly the entire species and it would seem to have no greater effect on the cosmos than the loss of the insect you might have killed this morning. Seems to me that's the point of verse 3 of Psalm 8. Look at your Psalm 8 here. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, just a footnote for the interested. I read the son of man language there in the standard Old Testament way. I don't see any evidence that the author of Hebrews is directly changing that where this is just referring to a human being. We are, in that sense, all sons of men, right? That's a standard way the phrase is used in the Old Testament. Do you get the psalmist's point here? Maybe we don't exactly. Or at least maybe we don't get the psalmist's point quite as well as we ought to because we simply don't get to see what David saw very often. There are no stars in the Toronto night sky. A few weeks ago, Emily and I and our girls were up in at Bruce Peninsula National Park. You may know that Bruce Peninsula National Park has been designated a dark sky preserve. I don't think I'd ever really been to a dark sky preserve before. Or if I have, I didn't really pay attention to it. And maybe it's because I don't get to see the stars very often here. It seemed even extra awesome to me 
But that first night we were there, to stare up at the night sky in a place like that, to behold this pitch black canvas, awash with streaks and points of brilliant light, light that had traveled the expanse of the universe to reach us. I mean, that's just what you could see with your own naked eyes, right? Which is what David, of course, would have been seeing too. That means, according to what I found at least quickly online, means that it's roughly, considering just one hemisphere, the, the, the scope of what you can see with your naked eye standing where you are in the earth, about 2,500 stars in your field of vision. But I say only because astronomers estimate that there are some 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And some of those galaxies have more than a trillion stars in them. The largest one, I don't know how people know this stuff, this week I read, the largest galaxy has some 100 trillion stars. <laughs> how do you even imagine? You can't. You can't. My question is, what's the natural conclusion to be drawn from that? Well, to put it mildly, the conclusion is, you're not very significant, right? What is man? But then the psalmist considers this. Not from the viewpoint of physics or humanism, but from the inexplicable, or at least inexplicable apart from grace, faithfulness of the Lord, our Lord the creator God, who turns out to be the covenant God. Yahweh, who chose Abraham and made a promise to Abraham. And what was that promise? <laughs> it's a bit of a sidebar track, I guess, but do you know, do you know how Paul describes that promise to Abraham? In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, but you can. Romans 4, verse 13. I couldn't get over this this week after I read it. I don't know if I'd ever seen this. I know I have, but I just didn't. Paul describes it, Romans 4, verse 13, quote, as the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be, catch this, heir of the world. What world do you think Paul's talking about there? How about the world to come? Or, same thing, the new heavens and new earth of Isaiah 65 and 66, which of course includes the physical earth itself. You see, the point is, the glory of humanity isn't innate. A look at the night sky reveals that. According to the Bible, the glory of humanity is bestowed upon us by the covenant Lord. That's what verse 5 of Psalm 8, if you're there in the text, what verse 5 of Psalm 8 says, Yet you, Lord our Lord, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've done that. And so now, according to Psalm 8, what does that glory look like? This is critical to see. Because if you look carefully here, now, you're still looking at Psalm 8, you might realize that the author of Hebrews omits the first part of verse 6 of Psalm 8 in how he quotes it. 
people debate why. I don't think it's because the author of Hebrews is trying to say something different than the psalm. Just keep reading with me in Psalm 8, verse 6. What's the glory? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Don't forget that line. All sheep and oxen and also all beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Contemplating the vastness of the universe, what ultimately astonishes the psalmist isn't the marvelous creation itself. No, it's the covenant God's intention for men and women within it. See? David sees that men and women are to have dominion, that all things are to be under their feet, that they are to exercise stewardship over the world of all God's creatures and God's created things. And so now where does David get such an outrageous idea as that? Where does his understanding of the intention of God come from? Where do we find this language of dominion elsewhere in the scriptures? You know where. It's Genesis 1. It's at the very beginning. It's the way things were, in fact, in the beginning. Before sin. Before death. When man and woman dwelt intimately with God. It was life as it was meant to be, and to make my point early, it's life as it will be again. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. This is where David gets what he's saying in Psalm 8. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You hear Psalm 8 in that? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You can't miss the point. The glory of man exists in being made in the image of God. Crowned with honor and glory. Yes. Why? Because though mankind is part of the created order, we're not like the rest of creation. Genesis says the rest of creation was created according to its kind. No, we were created like God. In fact, though this introduces a whole level of complexity that we will not address at all, I think Psalm 8, you're still looking at Psalm 8, Psalm 8 verse 5 there ought to read, you have made him a little lower than God. That's there in the footnote of the ESV. It's what the Hebrew says. We're just a little lower than God as the image of God. We have a function. We're supposed to literally image forth God, in how we exercise dominion in the world, you see? Or to put it another way, we represent God. 
I like what one scholar says on this. To be in the image of God means that mankind represents God so that what man does is what God himself would do if he ruled the world directly. In other words, our dominion is to be the way by which the nature of God's reign is made known. That's the glory of man, you see, to display who God is in how we live. Just think about that as the basis for all Christian ethics. Right. It is. Only what's the problem? You feel it, don't you? Genesis 1 isn't the world we're living in. To put it mildly, everything is certainly not in subjection under our feet, whatever our human-centered delusions may be to that effect. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Nature often works against us in response to our rebellion. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, the Lord God said to the man, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But eat he would, and the impact would be incalculable. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, the Lord God says, Genesis 3, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. None of that was the created intention. Till you return to the ground, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. John Calvin says, as soon as Adam cut himself off from God by his sin, he was then deprived of all the good things which he had received. It's paradise lost, isn't it? What God intended for man in creation isn't what we see. If we were to make a list of those things in this world not under man's control, it would get big very quickly. And the disorder runs deeper than we may realize. So how does the pastor put it at the end now of verse 8 in Hebrews 2? If you want to flip back now to Hebrews chapter 2. At the end of verse 8, the quote of the psalm is done at the beginning of verse 8. When the pastor begins to comment on the psalm, how does he put it? At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. No, I'm going to be picky, but I want you to understand my interpretation of Hebrews at this exact point, dear friends. As I read it, verses 5 through 8 of Hebrews chapter 2 are about men and women, human beings. It was to human beings that God subjected the world in creation. And I think the point is that as it was in creation... So shall it be again. David could see that, and so Psalm 8 celebrates it. I think the pastor writing Hebrews now claims it. Look at the middle of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. I'm saying that the him there in verse 8 is man. I think the pastor means to affirm what the psalm means, 
There was to be nothing in this world not under man's dominion. Nothing. Just let that form your understanding of the world to come. Can you, brothers and sisters? Because the point here is that we're destined for something unspeakably great. All in creation is to be put in subjection under our feet. According to the scriptures, we will rule it. Men and women were the crown of creation. We will not rule it oppressively, but with the righteous, wise, joyful, gentle character of God as the image of God that we were originally created to be. And then in response to that rule, all creation will one day serve us completely for a good end. My mind goes right to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, where Paul says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free, hear it, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We don't even need the pastor to say it, do we? But he does anyway. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Or as G.K. Chesterton has written famously, whatever else is true about man, this one thing is certain, man is not what he was meant to be. So then with time expired, <laughs> what's the answer? How can David be right in Psalm 8? What about God's creative intention? How will the alleged significance of men and women ever be achieved? Well, it's there in verse 9 of our text. But we see him the pastor proclaims. And now you, you just need to feel, you need to feel the shift that happens there between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to man. But we see him. Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, that's the first time the name Jesus appears in Hebrews, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Oh my, there's a lot of heavy lifting to be done there, isn't there? We cannot do it all. I'll just say a couple things, leave it to you to think it through this week. As I read it, Psalm 8 wasn't about Jesus, technically. There is no evidence I can find or read about that Psalm 8 was understood messianically by anyone before Jesus Christ. But Psalm 8 has been fulfilled by Jesus. That's what the pastor recognizes, as did many others in the New Testament. Probably the most important link that I can make for you is with the end there of the quote from Psalm 8 that you see in Hebrews 2, verse 8. Did you think of this when we looked at that verse? 
What does, in verse 8 of Hebrews 2, what does putting everything in subjection under his feet, what does that sound like in the context of Hebrews now? Why, wow, it sounds like chapter 1, verse 13, doesn't it? It sounds like the climactic scene of the vision of the Son's exalted glory. It sounds like Psalm 110, verse 1. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You hear the connection there? The ultimate intention in creation picked up and expressed in Psalm 8 is that everything will be in subjection to men and women, only that hasn't happened clearly. How then is that intention to be fulfilled? Through the man, Jesus Christ. Through the man, Jesus Christ, under whose feet all things will be subdued, as Psalm 110 prophesies. And look, what's the one thing above all other things which could never be put in subjection under our feet? Sin having entered the world. What is it in our world that mocks all the way David's vision in Psalm 8 above everything else? What's at the top of the list? What was it that the Lord God said to the man in the garden would be the consequence of eating of the forbidden fruit? You remember was death. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You will not surely die, the serpent countered in Genesis 3. But the Lord doesn't lie. They would die. The Lord himself would be the one to make sure of that. The words of Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, the angel and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the curse of death marks mankind even now with all its frustrations and futility. Far from reigning over creation, each and every one of us will instead return to dust from which we came. It's the problem of mankind, of all history. It's the problem set forth at the beginning of the Bible, the answer to which is unfolded in all the rest of the scriptures. And here it is in verse 9. But we see Jesus. You see, Hebrews is all about the Son bringing about the promise. We don't see Psalm 8 fulfilled in ourselves yet. What we do see is Psalm 8 fulfilled in Jesus. Our salvation as human beings is in the fact that God took on flesh. Jesus Christ was the first man to be restored to the destiny of Psalm 8. You see? Because, hear this, the God who drove man out has made it possible for us to go back in. 
by becoming a man himself and defeating death. <laughs> there will be a great deal to say about that as Hebrews now progresses, including next week. For now, just listen to two final New Testament passages as we close here, just to reinforce what we've seen. Two New Testament passages. The first is from Paul. He employs, in fact, both Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 26. Just listen to this. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Hear it. The last enemy to be destroyed, Paul says, is death. What Adam lost, Christ has regained. All who are faithful to him will partake of the glory and honor and dominion that was God's original creative intention. And having defeated death itself, what then awaits us? Well, the promise awaits. The world to come, the great salvation We've read now from the very first chapter of the Bible. Let's conclude by reading from the very last one. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel, remember what angels were doing in Genesis 3? Guarding the way to the tree of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb, he's ascended to the throne, will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And do you know how it ends? They will reign. They will reign forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.